Okay, so I'm a family practice doc. Uh, I live in uh, the Horn of Africa currently. I've lived there for about two months, moved from Jordan. We were there for about six years prior to that, Istanbul, prior to that, Cyprus, prior to that, Kashmir, prior to that, Pakistan. I don't move because I like to move or because I've got attention deficit, but I, I do have attention deficit, but I don't move because of that. Um, so I don't really have attention deficit. It's just people make fun of me that way. So I, I'm too smart to think about one thing at, at one time. I'm a doctor. <laughs> yeah, everybody's like, yeah, I know doctor. I'm not, I know doctor. All the nurses are like, every doctor thinks that. <laughs> Here's your prescription pad, <laughs> doctor, smart doctor. So um, what on earth will we talk? about. Uh, I don't move because I like it. The Lord has moved us a lot. And the first time I moved, uh, and we're going to talk about missionary strategy, but this is just part of it. Uh, the first time I moved, uh, I didn't move of, of my own accord. I, we were in Pakistan. I've got the cutest little wife you've ever seen. I've got two precious children that are about to have birthdays to turn 17 and 15. And Mallory Grace was had been born in Pakistan, and she was almost... I don't know, she's like a loaf of bread. And we, I was painting the nursery and putting up this Laura Ashley border that we had. Oh, girl, it was so cute. And so, <laughs> like, they call me and they go, you've been kicked out of the country. <laughs> That's not right. I, plant, I had planted a garden. I had rock garden going. I mean, I was like, I, had, I thought I'd stay in this house for 40 years and learn this language and be with this people group and and do medical missions the way that I understood medical missions. And uh, it's not the word in the Bible, so it's hard to look it up and know what medical missions is. Uh, and that was part of the problem. And I, I felt so ashamed. I'd been kicked out of a country. Nobody in my company had ever been kicked out of a country before. I, I work for the Southern Baptist. I'm, I'm not like your typical Baptist. I do have the Baptist hair thing going. Uh, <laughs> so. Ethiopian haircut like a week ago. I was like Jesus hair. I was like, I need shorter hair. Short hair. <laughs> you know? I, mean, I swear, I, I told the guy, I said like, I know like one word in Amharic or two words. I said, you know, you can do it. And he was like, yes. So I thought he could speak English. Yeah, he can. Yes. That's the only word he knew. So he was cutting, cutting, cutting. And I started talking to him. He didn't speak English. It was like he was pruning hedges. Okay, so... Uh, I, I work for the Baptist. See, I can get back to where I was. And uh, uh, I've been doing that for 16 years. And no, none of us had ever been kicked out of a country before. None of us had ever been kicked out of Pakistan before. And here I was, the big lo- loser. Is that the right L for y'all? Or is that what? Depends on if you're Arabic or if you're English anyway. So I was ashamed. And I was ashamed for days. We cried. And uh, we thought, you know, we're losers. Where do we go now? And all this stuff. And I, I picked up my Bible. And I love the book of Acts. And when I get sad, I read the book of Acts over and over and over. I've read the book of Acts a lot. Uh, and guess what? <laughs> if you haven't been kicked out of a country, you're a loser. <laughs> Paul and Barnabas were kicked out of every country, every city, everywhere. That's part of what we do. We go and we do something like really offensive. The gospel is offensive. And our presence is offensive. And we get kicked out and we move a lot. And, and that's weird because we read missionary biographies and they didn't do that. And great for them. But it's okay to be kicked out. It's okay to move around a lot. Don't get a picture of missions in your mind that's a non-biblical picture of missions. It can be, it can be an extra-biblical Picture. So, I mean, you know, William Carey, he goes somewhere, and, and Hudson Taylor, they go and they stay all their life. 
Well, that's not the way that it was done in the Bible, but it's not anti-biblical. So both ways are going to be right. Uh, but don't get fixed in your mind that you understand what church planting is, what missions is, what medical missions is, because it can be a stumbling block to you. And, and that happened to me. And I had to learn what is church, what is missions, what is a disciple, what is the mission of God, what is medical missions. I threw medical missions out. It's like medical missions is not in the Bible. And if we think of the word medical missions, we start conjuring, we start building hospitals, and we start doing procedures, and we start doing these things. And we turn around and it's like, gosh, we've been here 40 years. We've never planted a church. Common problem for medical missionaries because we're so good at medicine, except those of us who are running for malpractice suits, and uh, I'm not, I just said that, can, can we back that up, uh, and uh, so we're so good at that, that when you get in a Muslim context, and you try to make disciples, and it doesn't work, you revert back to that which you're, with which you're comfortable. You remember in pediatrics, when the uh, kids were sick, and they're stressed, and they revert back to an earlier stage of development. They stop eating solids, go back to milk. They stop walking. They start crawling again because they're sick. They've been stressed. They revert back to something with which they're more, much more com- comfortable. You can't imagine the stressors on the mission field uh, working with Muslims. That's where, I mean, I, do, I have worked with Hindus. I have worked with Buddhists, but very little. So it's mostly Muslim context. It's hard, challenging work. So guess what happens when you can't plant a church among Muslims? You revert back to that with which you are most comfortable. For us, it's whatever we spent 10 years getting educated in. Medicine. All right? So that has happened. On the mission field, I saw uh, a dichotomy, uh, or, or two camps, we're going to say, of, of, of missionaries. I saw preachers and I saw healers. And... Uh, the preachers were like my heroes in some ways. I sat with those guys because I wasn't so much a preacher. I mean, I've got 30 hours of seminary, um, and I've stood behind a pulpit before, and I thought that was what preaching was. It's not what preaching is. Um, and uh, I, you know, I really admired these guys and, and girls that, that were, were preachers. But what they did was they, all, they were all about uh, – sharing the gospel or witnessing and stuff like that. And to be quite honest, in the Muslim context where we were, they were not being very successful with making disciples and with planting churches. Weird. They should have been. I don't know why they're not. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. When people hear the gospel, they're supposed to respond to it. But in Pakistan and in India, where I went uh, after that, after we got kicked out, we went to Kashmir, and I had a guy approach me and he said, Chuck, when do you shake the dust off your feet and just go? He'd been keeping count. He said, he said today I witnessed to uh, guy number 221, and no one has ever responded to the gospel. And I thought, oh, why did I move here? This guy's so much better than me, <laughs> and he's not making disciples. And I said, you know, I don't know the answer because, you know, you're obviously the seminary guy, and I'm just a dumb country hick doctor, um, and uh and I said, but the, you know that passage about kicking the dust off your feet, that doesn't apply to whole people groups. That was like cities. You go to a city, it doesn't work out, you shake off the dust. Don't give up on the Kashmiri. That was our people group. 4.2 million people, no known indigenous church. 4.2 million people, no known indigenous church. No known, no known church at all. There was, there was a Catholic church and a Protestant church all filled with South Indians. 
I mean, I, I met one guy uh, who had come to the Lord like 30 years earlier. That was it. Nothing. That's just wrong, isn't it? 4.2 million people. And here's this precious guy, and he's trying. We're going to call him Robert. And he's trying, he's beating his head against the gates of hell, and he's not making any progress. And he asked me for advice, and I was just like, I don't know what to tell you. So that's the healers. Now, I had been bouncing around. We got kicked out of Pakistan, and I went to all these other countries, and I would see uh, healers, you know, like in hospitals in Nepal or India or wherever, and they're, they're just working all day long. More patients, more patients. We can't go to bed at night because there's still people waiting to be seen. And they're saying, what do we do? I'll never forget this guy from Bangladesh, a surgeon. And, John, you're probably at the meeting, and the guy said, you know, my number one problem is I can't evangelize because I got sick people. I mean, you know what? I can't even sleep because I got sick people. When I go to bed, there's 200 people waiting on the lawn outside to be seen by the doctor. I was like, dude, you live in Bangladesh. <laughs> I mean, move. Go to Nebraska or something where there's no people. Nevada. It's just too many people in Bangladesh. You're not going to be able to patch up everybody. Okay, so it's like once I get everybody well, then I'm going to preach the gospel in Bangladesh. Good luck with that. You know, I tried that myself. So that's what the healers are doing. The healers are killing themselves. The most valiant, amazing men and women you've ever seen. I mean, the preachers are my heroes. The, the, the healers are, are more my heroes. Uh, and, and I'm not sure which one I am. I mean, I, I, was, you know, I was just a disciple of Jesus. And God said, go to medical school so that I can send you to countries where missionaries can't go. I didn't want to be a doctor. It was like a vehicle to get the gospel where missionaries couldn't go, and I wasn't a very good evangelist anyway. And so here I am in Pakistan, and now in India, and I'm seeing this, these two camps of people. The preachers preaching, but not making any success. The healers healing, but not having time to preach the gospel. So uh, we just tried to just get out there and wing it. And uh, what we knew how to do was heal. But we said our measure of success is going to be disciples because Jesus did not say, go heal as many people as possible. You know, he said, go make disciples of all nations. So we're healers, so we're going to start with healing, but our objective is to make disciples. So at the end of the month, we're not going to count how many sick people we saw. We did count that, but our measure of success for a good month was how many people heard the gospel that have never heard it before, how many people came to Christ. And then after that, how many people are multiplying and telling their families about Christ. That's our measure of success. We got out there and we started sharing the gospel and and after, after we saw sick people, we'd get in their homes. So we changed from a, a strategy in which we were doing a clinic and just seeing 80 patients a day, you know, in a, an old dirt room with no light and snow outside. And we'd do that a couple of days. And then we'd tell the village leader, we've got to go house to house to teach people preventive medicine because they've all got issues related to infectious disease because of unsafe water, poor nutrition, uh, no mosquito nets, you know, things that are easily preventable. So we need to go house to house and teach. And the government said, yeah, you've earned the right to do that, even in a Muslim country and your visitors, but you're the, the doctors. And so we started going house to house, and I would see patients, and then you have to drink tea. So I drink tea, and while I'm drinking tea, I was like, so tell me, what has the Lord done for you this year? Or how has the Lord blessed you? And it turned into a spiritual conversation, and I'd share the gospel. And uh, we saw people coming to Christ, a lot of people coming to Christ. And then our translators, I'll never forget, Fayaz came to me, and we've been there like two months. 
This guy showed up at my house. I guess there's too many stories to tell. Uh, old people got lots of stories. We've lived a long time, and our kids are sick of hearing them. So, uh, Fayaz came to me, and uh, and with uh, I can't remember Umar, and on I've been there like two two weeks I think in the country, less than a month, and, and maybe a month. And he comes to the house, knocks on the door, and I open the door. Yes, it's a total stranger. He goes, I'm a Christian. I'm like, how did you? That's weird. Cool. I was like, how about you? The guy goes, no, I'm thinking about it. Okay. So, <laughs> fair enough. I mean, seriously, fair enough. He's a Muslim. They're from Muslim backgrounds. Like, he's thinking about it. Try before he buy. So <laughs> I said, come on in the house. What can I do for you? They said, we want to start the first ever Kashmiri church. I was like, that's cool. That's way cool. How, why would they come to me? Why did... How on earth did these guys come to Christ? The stories were amazing of how they had come to Christ. The Lord had orchestrated it that these two guys came to Christ. I said, why would you come to me? What makes you think I'm a Christian? They said, dude, you're going up in the mountains helping the poor people. Freezing. There's stories about you already. You're not smart. Uh, (laughs) But you've got love. You've got to be a Christian. I said, okay, you nailed me. I'm a Christian. What can I do for you? They said, we want to start a Kashmiri church. I said, okay, here's what I'll do for you. Uh, if you will promise to come with me and be my translator into Kashmiri language, because my Urdu is very bad anyway, and the people in the mountains only speak Kashmiri, if you will come with me and translate, no pay, I'll treat, teach you about Christ all the way up, all the way back, I'll help you. He said, he said, deal. And I said, look, I need to tell you why I'm not paying you. Because there's only two of you guys, and, and you're not going to be able to work all the time. And some days, we're going to need to fill in translators, and if they're Muslims, we're paying them. He said, well, you're paying the Muslims to translate, but you're not paying us? I said, that's right. Because, here's the deal, you're a Christian, and you're a Kashmiri, and the problems in the mountains really belong to you more so than me. I mean, you're supposed to love the people in the mountains, and you're supposed to volunteer your time to care for them. And at some point, by the way, you're going to share the gospel. And the first thing that they're going to ask is, how much is that American paying you to convert to Christ? And you need to be able to say, I don't take any money. I do this because I love Christ and I love the people. He said, oh, this is a great idea. Never give me any money. (laughs) This is awesome. Okay, so like a week later, he brings his brother, his cousin, like Lenny or somebody. I don't know. That's not a, okay, I don't know. So he brings this guy. It started with an L, but it was uh, uh, Indian. So, uh, so he brings this guy, and he's a Muslim. We're in the car. We're driving up. The guy goes, I'm not getting any money to do this. I'm volunteering. You're getting paid. You're doing it for the money. I do it because I love the people. I was like, this is so cool. So, I was like, I'm just driving. This is awesome. Okay, so, so like a month later, Fayaz comes to me. He goes, Dr. Chuck, I've got some people I want you to baptize. I said, dude, I, I don't baptize them. You let them to Christ, you baptize them. Okay? And he's, he's like, I don't know how. I said, okay, the first one, that guy that was like half and half, by the way, it wasn't Umar, it was Mushtaq. Mushtaq, I helped lead to Christ. I'll get in the water with you. <laughs> it was glacier water. They go, we know a lake. <laughs> okay, they didn't know the English word for glacier water, lake. You know, I can see the glacier. It was freezing. <laughs> and the water's going like this, and you lay them down, and you go, whoa. <laughs> I could say, uh, be filled with water. <laughs> you know, 
And so we had to lay them down frontwise. So, uh, uh, like the Jesus film. He said, oh, that's like a Jesus film. I was like, where did you see that? It's amazing. So I helped with the person. But anyway, he said, I've got some people I want you to baptize. And I said, well, let me, I'll show you how. How many people are we talking here? He said, 15. He had led 15 people to the Lord, like in less than two months. I said, how are you doing this? He said, I go to the people that already trust me. Everybody in my family, my friends, my schoolmates, between ages about 15 and 30 to 35. Because they trust me. I've already got a relationship. And I tell them, God has done a wonderful thing in my life. He led 15 people to the Lord. Another guy led like 40 to the Lord. He lived in a small town like a suburb. He went to every schoolmate that he had ever had. And then he taught them how to go to other schoolmates. They ended up with 60 disciples in that place. Within 18 months, we had, I thought it was 200 people that had come to Christ. And after I left, uh, a Frontiers team came in. They said, no, we did an evaluation. It's more like 300 people came to Christ. I did not lead many of those people to Christ, you know, like 10. But I showed some guys how to do it. And they went home and they shucked corn, as we say back, you know, in Tennessee. And they rocked and rolled and cooked and baked and shaked. And they were awesome. And all these people came to the Lord. And, uh... I thought, this is, I'm going to stay here forever and like stay in the glow of the new church. Oh, like, this is, just watch what God's doing. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there picking up fruit that's falling off the ground. I'm not pulling and yanking like we were in Pakistan. I don't know the difference. I'm not sure why it happened that way. Something, something like the spiritual climate was different. I don't know. But people came to Christ. And, and one of the reasons I figured out why, I asked them, when they came to me and they said, uh, we want you to teach us more about Christ so that we can plant a church. I said, Robert's been here a year and a half. Remember my friend that had witnessed to 220 people? Robert's been here a year and a half. Why don't you go to Robert? You go, we don't like Robert. Now, by we, I think they were talking about the community. Because that's the way they think and they do stuff. They do stuff in like a pack. They all know you. I'd get on a bus. People would stand up and give you their seats. Like, how do you know me? They're like, you're the holy man. I was, told, I was called the holy man. Because you're going into the mountains caring for the poor in a war zone. You've got your wife and your children here. So we don't like then like Robert. I said, why? They said, he goes around, he tells people that he's a businessman. But he goes around talking about Jesus and passing out tracts. He never does any business. We don't trust him. He didn't have integrity in their eyes. Been there a year and a half talking about Jesus. They wanted to learn about Jesus, but he was off limits. Isn't that weird? But, but important for us to learn. They had made a judgment about that person and said, we're not going to learn from him because you can't trust him. He doesn't have integrity. Don't want to learn from him. We came up, been there like two weeks, helping the poor up in the mountains. Yeah, I, I think I can trust that guy. And that's what we can all do. Everybody in this room can do stuff like that. But you've got to juxtapose healing with preaching. Sharing the gospel, making disciples, forming those disciples into multiplying churches so that the gospel could spread throughout the whole region. Good? Questions on that? What's it look like today? I I mean, at one point I heard there's over a thousand disciples like a couple of years later. And there's this phenomenon that I think happens. I think people come to Christ and it just takes off like this. And then a lot of people fall away. So those numbers go up. 
and they come down again. So the fact that it's right currently at 1,000, I think, is, is impressive. Because, like, one time they said, oh, 4,000 people. Somebody reported 10 to 12,000 people to come to Christ. That was ridiculous, I think. Uh, but, you know, maybe over time a couple of thousand people have said, yeah, I'm leaving Islam for Christianity. But a lot of those people have come back. Two months ago, I wrote my friend, Fayaz, and I asked him the question, how's it going there? And his answer was so cool and poignant, and it's straight from the Scripture. And he said, everything is going great. The, the trials are unimaginable here, but everything is going great spiritually. The Lord is adding to our number daily. That's straight from the book of Acts. I don't know if he knew that was straight from the book of Acts. It was so encouraging to me. It's like, okay, that's a win. <laughs> Let's chalk that one up for a win. 6,000 to go. You know, 6,000 ethnic groups to go that have not, that do not have that kind of a, a movement, at least. Yes, sir. I think um, that's a great question, and we talk about it all the time. I now don't do so much clinical medicine as much as I do community development in the Sahara Desert the, the last couple of years. I've, I've mainly worked there. I mean, I go to Afghanistan. I go to Iraq. It's about that every once in a while. But I'm mainly working among totally unengaged peoples of the, of the Sahara Desert. And we use humanitarian aid organizations as our, our vehicle out there. And it's really tricky because if I... Keep telling myself the number of disciples at the end of the month is how I count success. Then I may I may forget that I promised the government to be a humanitarian aid worker, and the people of the town see me as a humanitarian aid worker. So I can't see it as I'm going to do humanitarian aid so that I can make you into disciples. That's not fair. That's not integrous. I need to heal you because you need me. It's right. And I'm a humanitarian aid worker. And so I can work from nine to six doing great, the best humanitarian aid work that they've seen. So my objective is try to beat Doctors Without Borders and Samaritan's Purse. Not hard. Okay? And the United Nations just don't even have to show up. Sorry about Samaritan's Purse and, and, uh, and World Vision, all those kind of things. Because it's like usually they've, they hire nationals to do their work. And, you know, they're not doing the same kind of work that we are. They're passing out food in the name of Jesus. Awesome thing. We are teaching people how to prevent diseases, and we're doing this kind of stuff. So we're doing the work ourselves. Okay? So maybe I shouldn't have made that crack about Samaritan's person. At the end of the day, they feed a lot more people than we can, and we do a lot of stuff. But I guess the amount of daily work that we're doing, our work ethic, has got to be stronger than theirs. And they play a lot of cards. So, uh, but they're Muslims. They hire Muslims because there's not any Christians in the Sahara Desert. They're, they're hiring Muslims to do their work. Christians have got a stronger work ethic. So we work harder. We smile. We, when we hold those babies and kiss them, we actually genuinely love them. You, maybe your flesh doesn't, but the Christ in you loves them. And you do it not so that you can leverage the, the situation to make disciples later. You do it because it's right. Okay? If people come to Christ, that's a bonus. Okay, you do it because it's right. So if you do it and you don't make disciples, that, you know, as long as you preach the gospel, you did your best. But after six o'clock, you're on your own time. And I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I've got to talk about Christ between six and midnight. That's when people come to Christ anyway. Muslims come to Christ after dark. 
They just do. That's when they drink tea. That's when they talk about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. That's all they talk about. And that's when we can talk about Christ. And so we lead people to Christ after dark in our, in our volunteer time. That's hard because you know what Americans want to do? Go home be with their wife and kids. So we work extra hard. We are full-time healers. Best they've seen. They're, I mean, they came to us and go, Dr. Chick, you have to restart your clinic. It's like, you, you really, your medicine helped us. But Medicine Sans Frontier, Doctors Without Borders, they don't even give us medicine. I went to them and I said, I'm, I was seeing a lot of amoeba. They go, we don't see any. I said, how do you test for that? Do you have a microscope? No, we tell people to just bring us butt, bloody diarrhea in the cup and then we'll treat it. That's not nice. People told me they got bloody diarrhea for six months off and on. I treat it. Metronidazole, baby. Got a bottle right here, you know. And so they loved us because we, we, we loved them and they gave, we gave out the medicine and they trusted us and listened to us. Does that answer your question? Okay, you're welcome. Thank you for asking that. That's a good one. All right, let's move on to some strategy points because I think I've only got about 15 minutes. Um, this is really hard. I, I mean, I just want to talk about church planning strategy. And I, to be quite honest, it was like two months ago that they told me to write something to put in that book. I don't have any idea what it, I wrote. I haven't looked at it in a couple of months. So we're going to talk about church planning strategy. And we're going to talk about the last frontier missions, because uh, I do remember that was the part of the talk. And, uh, and so, <laughs> don't laugh at me. I'm jet lagged. <laughs> I'm going to tell my wife. Um, so strategy is tough, because only good strategy is good strategy. There, there's some... Okay, first there's some traps. And if you've been talking to me the last two days, and like I keep telling people the same talk over and over. Sorry about that if you've already heard it. But there's some traps. Because what we do is we, we go with our Christian culture. We go with missions culture. We go with whatever our church leaders say. So I think Nathan pointed out the other day, uh, last night, like the, the church is taking a mission trip to Dominican Republic. The church is doing it. Sponsored by the church. got to be a good idea. The leaders said it was a good idea, so you take $2,000 out of your pocket, or $4,000, and you go to Dominican Republic, and, and you do whatever they asked you to do. Is that good strategy? Well, you know, Dominican Republic, somebody told me if another mission trip lands there, the whole island's going to sink. Uh, <laughs> so, sorry, but if you're from Dominican Republic, stuff like that, but it's not in the same league with the Sahara Desert, is it? So we've got to be smart about strategy. We can't just go with what the church is doing. We can't just go with what our culture is doing. Remember, the term medical missions almost messed me up. When they told me I was a church planter, I, I was like, I had, I, I, my understanding of church almost messed me up. Got to have a building. Got to have air conditioning. Got to have a PA system. Got to have a seminary trained pastor. Gotta, that was my experience. Look in the Bible. You know, four people as a church. I guess. I don't know. There's no number in the Bible. The only number in the Bible is where two or more are gathered. That freaked me out. Somebody said, well, what, what size of church are you going for? I said, maybe 100. <laughs> you get together 100 born-again Muslims, they're not going to live out the day if you put them all together. Everybody's, they're going to be attacked. You build a building, it's going to be blown up by the weekend. Um, so my understanding of church was messing me up, and I had to go back to the Bible and say, Wipe everything from the hard drive that I think I know because I don't know hardly anything. I'm clueless. And rewrite from the Bible what is church, what is church planning, what is the mission of God, all those kinds of things. What is good strategy? 
Good strategy is not responding to a need. That's a big one. They really need me there. They're really hurting there. Okay, it could be good strategy, but it's not necessarily by itself. Right now, we're really needed in Haiti. Okay, the people are suffering. They're dying. Maybe it's, if it's the neediest place on earth, should we go there? Is that good strategy? Why would we spend our money to go there to Haiti, which is evangelized over and over and over, as long as Saudi Arabia has no church in Riyadh or in Mecca? Why would we do that? Just because it's a need, just because it's a need does not mean it's a good strategy. Just because we're, it's an opportunity. People go, oh, there's such an opportunity there. Not necessarily a good strategy. Okay? Just because you're invited there. Invited may be the worst. Because who's going to invite you? Pastors come to Dominican Republic. That's the reason we go. We're invited. And we feel like, oh, the Lord is calling us there because we were invited. There's nobody in Saudi Arabia inviting us. We'll never get to Saudi Arabia. See, we've got to look at the map. We've got to look at the, what's going on. The, the, the Great Commission is our responsibility, guys. We don't have a pope that tells us what to do to deploy our troops wisely. It's us, friends, evangelical disciples, looking at this stuff, figuring it out. The evangelical church has gotten so on board with this in the last 20 years. It's amazing. Patrick Johnstone has done all this research to tell us where's the gospel been and where's it not been. We've got maps that tell us what's evangelized and what's not evangelized. And that's cool. And that's the first step in strategy. Never spend any of your resources, prayer, money, time in a place that already has an established church. Okay? If you do it like as a pastor or something like that, that's cross-cultural teaching. But we're, we're health professionals. Health professionals are the point of the scalpel to open up a new area. That's what we're great at. And so they, they don't need us to go somewhere where the church is already established. Take a look at the Western Hemisphere. No, no, the red dots are not evangelized. I'm overgeneralizing because this is a pretty complicated map. And I don't care for this map, but it's the best one we got. Red dots are unevangelized. Green dots are hyper-evangelized. The dark green... Hyper-evangelized, this green, very evangelized, this yellow, pretty evangelized. They've got the capacity to reach themselves, is what that yellow means. Okay? The red, no way. They don't have the capacity to reach themselves. India looks the worst, and it is the worst. Statistically, there's more unengaged, unreached people groups in India, more unreached people groups in India, uh, uh, Less missionaries per capita than anywhere in the world. <laughs> Why? They've got a population of 1.2 billion. So you can pour missionaries in there, and statistically, it just doesn't move the needle, you know? So uh, India is a very important place, a very good place. But I've got to tell you, I moved from there because I saw so many born-again Indians trying to reach their own country. And that was cool. It's not totally true. If you want to go to India, God's telling you to go to India, you go to India. Okay, if God's telling you to go to South America, I want you to really rethink that <laughs> because you've got to make sure it's God telling you. But if it's God telling you, go. But look at the strategy because remember the book of Acts. What did Paul do? He went to a place where the gospel had never been, Galatia, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe. Second trip, what did he do? Went back to the same cities to check on them, and then he headed to Bithynia up north where the gospel had never been before. Interestingly, the Spirit of Jesus prevented him, and so he went over to Macedonia and planted churches in Philippi and where? Corinth? I don't know. Uh, anyway, two of them over in Macedonia. 
And uh, where the gospel had never been before. Came back, rested again, went on a third journey. Went to those two places and then went even further where the gospel had never been before. That's what we as apostolic workers, sent out ones, missionaries, that's what we do. We advance the gospel further and further into enemy territory. Nathan talked about the gates of hell last night. Look, these are the gates of hell, the red ones. Those are the gates of hell. Everybody in the, gospel, in the green area... And this is a generalization, but statistically, everybody in the green area is going to hear the gospel over and over and over. I'm from a pagan family. My dad told me he was an atheist, uh, but I heard the gospel when I was 13. And then I heard it like every month after that for the rest of my life. You know, I live in the the Bible Belt. We're all going to hear the gospel over and over. People born in Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Iran and this Sahel Belt and India... They're going to be born, and this is again as a generalization, but over 99% in a lot of those areas are going to be born, live out their life of 47 and 65 years. They're going to die. They're never going to shake hands with a Christian. They're never going to hear the gospel clearly communicated. They're going to be told that Jesus was a prophet. He did not die. God does not have a son. And they'll never hear anything about the resurrection. That's wrong. That's wrong for one set of people to hear the gospel over and over and over. Other people did not have a chance. If it's wrong, whose responsibility is it to take care of it? Ours. The Great Commission is ours. Yes. I got a couple of free ones upstairs somewhere, but I can give you an electronic copy if you want to. Look, write down my email address. Anybody that wants to email me. Look, I came. I haven't seen my wife in two weeks. She's in Ethiopia. I came here for this conference. I don't. I don't like America. Uh, I, I like it with, with Michelle and the kids. It's fun then. But by myself, it's just jet lag city and, you know, I, I, it's like all a blur. So I came here to recruit people for the 1040 window, for the Muslim areas, for the Sahara Desert, the Arabian Peninsula, Afghanistan, Iraq. I mean, I know, I'm sorry, it's hard to market these things. Uh, it's like, please sign up for Killer Muslims of the Sahara Desert. You'll love it. We've got beachfront property. There's no water, but there's beach. Uh, (laughs) Nobody wants to buy what I'm selling. But I'm here anyway, and I'm here to tell you about it. They're not going to hear the gospel. They're not going to hear the gospel. And I don't mean a person, a family, a community. I'm talking about a ethno-linguistic group of 50,000 to 2 million people Everybody is going to be born, live their life, die without the gospel. It's our responsibility as the church to do something about it. So I'm here to tell it and to try to see who I can get to sign up. So if you're at all interested in buying this great deal, don't forget, right before midnight tonight to my email address, Chuck and A-N-D, Michelle with two L's, M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E, you've already got it, goof, <laughs> at gmail.com. Okay? I will answer every email that's serious about, I want to come and risk my life for the gospel of Jesus Christ in these crazy places that you're talking about. It's really fun. It's hard to get that across. It is in a twisted way. Uh, all right, I'm going to take questions. Uh, so the map, I think we don't have to go through it. Strategy is take the gospel where it's never been before. Take the gospel where it's never been before. Take the gospel where it's never been before. Preach and heal. 
And the best way to do that is to work all day long until 6 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, whatever they do in that culture, and then get out there in the community behind closed doors with the people that you've already helped, drink tea and share Christ with them. And then you don't have to add uh, 10,000 people. See, you, you know, you're going to have to add, you're going to have to get 50,000 Christians to change the t- statistics from red to orange. How are you going to get 50,000? You don't have to. You make 12 disciples. Jesus left the whole planet in the hands of 12 disciples. Make real disciples. They multiply. I mean, isn't that cool? So, are you a real disciple? Are you ready to multiply? That's what you've got to ask yourself. Am I a real disciple? Yes. I'll do anything for Christ. Okay? What does he want? He wants you to bear much fruit. Go make disciples of all nations. Questions? Yes, doctor. How do you uh, go about You sit down and drink tea with these people. You've got to speak their language or somehow communicate with them. How, how does that happen to us Americans who know one language? Great question. Okay, I've moved so many times that I have never... This is another thing to my shame... The missionaries that I respect, like Keith Twitty and John Gibson, okay, John can speak Thai. He dreams in Thai language. Uh, it's, it's twisted what he does with this language. It's amazing. He passed the boards in Thai. He knows Thai inside and out. These guys are my heroes. That, God didn't give me that. I had to move around, so I spoke some Urdu. I spoke some Turkish. I spoke some Arabic. Uh, none of them real well. So what do I do? I use translators. I've led so many people to the Lord with translators. I just did not, and I was told over and over and over, you have to learn the heart language. I tried. While I'm trying, I used translators. I led people to the Lord. Two years later, I got kicked out. Never got the heart language real well, or I I moved. So it's right to learn the language. Try to learn the language. But don't say, I'm not going to make disciples until I've got the language. Okay? Do not postpone the making of disciples. Just go out there and do it. And if you make 12 disciples before you've learned the language and they're starting to multiply and the church is growing, it's time for you to go. It was hard for me to leave Kashmir. And everything was on, I was on top. Never heard of anybody, you know, being, I didn't lead 300 people to the Lord, but I'd never heard of this happening. So I wanted to stay there. And the Lord said, nope, you're gone. Don't need you. You appointed elders. The church is healthy. You strengthened and encouraged them. I went back three times over the next year and encouraged them and taught them about house church and stuff like that. Okay, so that's my answer. That's a hard one, though. Yes, doctor. Um, and so, how do you, how does your family participate mm. in the mission? Um, and how do you, you know, if you're working from nine to six every day and then going out? Great um, question. Okay. Men and women are more separated. Yeah, they are separated, and it's tough. Okay, uh, Michelle and I see the objective, the object, exactly the same. So we are such a team, and that brings the kids in. We talk about these unengaged peoples all the time. We talk about the families that haven't heard Christ. We talk about the man of peace that we just met, and we pray as a family. So we have a team approach to it. It's not daddy's doing his thing, they're doing their thing. So that's part of it. My family's moved with me to Darfur, Sudan for three months, to Yemen for three months, to Ethiopia before, like for one month. We've been to Armenia. Sometimes I'm able to scrape together the money and take my family with me when I travel. So that's me. But I've got a weird job. I travel. I'm talking about if you're the primary community development guy, like, like we were in Sudan, my family lived in Niala, which is in a war zone. But then I took a helicopter and went into a real war zone, and I camped out for ten days. 
And then I came back for four days, and I had, like, nurses with me and other volunteer doctors. And I came back for four days and re-got supplies and hugged my kids and kissed my wife, and we did stuff together, and I went out again. Ten days, we came back. We did it over and over and over. We did it for months. Um, if I, and, and we saw people come to Christ. A lot of people come to Christ. It was so cool. Of course, the war ran over, so we got ran out. I'm, trying, I'm here trying to recruit for Sudan, for Darfur, Sudan. Uh, it's the size of France, Texas, the size of Texas geographically. It's got 6 million people from 20 to 30 different ethno-linguistic groups, 30 languages with no access to the gospel. There are one or two teams that I've heard of that are there. Um, so anyway, we got there and led people to Christ. My family was, like, so into it. And we would come back, and my wife and kids would have made food for us and made, uh, gotten shopping for us and treated us great. So we had a team approach to ministry. Uh, when, when we're in Ethiopia or Cyprus or, or Jordan, wherever we are, we're prayer walking our neighborhoods. We're going into houses after dark. My wife and I, we, uh, we'll go upstairs to neighbors and leave the kids behind. We'll take the kids with us until 10 or 11 o'clock at night. So you have to change some of your rules. Uh, we would, you know, we have a family, families reaching families. It's a great way to do it. Good question. By the way, there's so many more women on the mission field than men. Men are dogs compared to women. And uh, they are, we need to talk a lot more about the importance of women in ministry because they're pivotal figures in what's going on. Yeah, ladies first. Yes, ma'am. And how do the women function in Muslim countries on the mission field? There's a huge, uh, with, with Muslims, I just got to do Muslims, sorry. There's a, a wide variety, a wide spectrum. Uh, everywhere we have been, and even in very strict Muslim countries, Michelle has been um, able to go with me into houses. But like Pakistan, parts of rural Pakistan were the worst. She'd always cover her head. She'd sometimes cover her head and face and over her ear. And then she, everything from that to walking with a dipata or some scarf around her neck and, and just walking the streets. Those are the two spectra. And with one of them, like we'd go into a house and she'd have to go into the kitchen. And the lady wouldn't even speak Urdu, which is the business language. And, and Michelle would have to smile and laugh and, and try to figure out the language. And, and that's how you learn the language get stuck in the kitchen with somebody about four hours while your husband's out there drinking tea in English and having fun, you know. <laughs> so we got that one, and then we got the one where the two of us go together and we sit down and drink tea opposite another family and everything in between. But there is a ton of separation of men and women. And just the women, are, they suck it up and they do it. They're amazing. Yes, doctor. There are a number of international hospitals in some of these really red gates of hell places that are recruiting American doctors. Yeah. Now, do you think that's a strategy to look at, or is that a trap? Okay, it's it's a good question, because I'm not positive. Um, I'm, I'm like, really afraid that it's a trap. So, if Satan can trick you, he will. Always be afraid that you're going to go down a cul-de-sac. All right? Be afraid of that. But, don't write anything off and say, well, that doesn't work. Mission hospitals, those don't work. Yeah, they do. In some places, they do real well. Just It varies. Strategy is not black and white. So the international hospitals, uh, um, I think we need to try them, John, because they're in a lot of places like Saudi where nothing else is going. So it's a lot better to get there and try and see what we learn and then communicate with each other and then see if we can develop home health programs out, out of that 
by which we can get behind closed doors and make disciples. Um, see, they could be a great base, but we've all got to get together and get, we've got to have money to, to start these uh, home health programs. But, of course, the hospitals might make What do you think? I mean, well, I, you know, I, are you worried about I have talked with some that have gone there, and usually they're secluded into a, Saudi. Into a compound. Saudi, they put them in a compound. And they really don't allow them access to Saudi people. They allow them access to other unreached people groups from India yeah. and Pakistan. And, and, and yeah. so there might be strategy there. But to really, if you have a heart for the Saudi people, I don't know that that's going to get you there. My idea for Saudi is uh, rehab. Because of consanguineous marriages between first cousins, Saudi Arabia has the second highest birth defect rate in the world. Second highest. Saudi, they've got hospitals and oxygen and PICUs and NICUs and all this kind of stuff. I mean, why do they have a high birth defect rate? It's not the deliveries. Consanguineous marriages. Everybody's first cousins marriage their first cousin over and over and over and over and over. Okay? So they got like an 8.5% rate for moderate to severe birth defects. Can you believe that? And they have like four to five, six children. So there's like one or two. I've seen two in, house, in the same house many times. It's, it's a, we were talking about this a little while ago. It's kind of like sometimes it's a matter of shame for the family. And they love those children. And they desperately want some help. But there's no rehab services for them. So what if we had a business for profit, went into homes, helped people maximize the function of that child, and then they're going to trust us. We share Christ with them. We don't have to be the only ones do it. Doing it, we can train Filipino workers and Pakistani workers. They're born again, see. But we have to lead the charge, and that's going to take some work. And if anybody wants to go to Saudi Arabia, talk to me about that one too. That's probably where Michelle and I want to end up. I don't know. Yes, sir. I I don't know a lot about China. I know that Eastern China is unbelievably evangelized now. They've got the capacity to reach themselves many times over. The Chinese are moving uh, west. But they're, they're hitting a roadblock. They're Han Chinese. They speak Mandarin. They're getting into their own minority groups, and they're foreigners, just like we are. But at least they probably have Mandarin in common with a lot of people. So they're making disciples. They want to come to the Middle East. They want to come to Muslims. they got a problem. How do you go from Mandarin to Arabic? You've got to go through English. Well, that's not fair to them. But the Koreans are doing it. The Koreans are learning English and then learning Arabic. That's so, so it's not a great answer. Yes, ma'am. What I know about North Korea is that the South Koreans have been praying for them and working on them for several decades now. And there's a lot of North Koreans that have come to Christ. There is a good movement of underground movement of North Koreans. They're so sick with their systems. Same thing in Iran, believe it or not. Great movement of no missionaries. You know, some born-again Iranians, probably from 30, 40, 40 years ago, that are spreading the gospel, and the gospel's moving real well in Iran. I mean, these are generalizations. You can't say, oh, that's every ethno-linguistic group in Iran. I think there's like, I don't know, maybe 60 groups in Iran. It's, it's kind of diverse. But there's, a, but maybe not, I don't know, maybe 16. But the gospel is, in general, <laughs> jet lag. The gospel's moving well in Iran. Anybody else got another quick one? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. It's part of my uh, witnessing thing now. i got two things I always say. I, I share the gospel, and then I say, no, 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 I think it's before I share the gospel. I say, I want, you know, have you ever heard about Jesus? They go, no. Okay, so, like, I have a, a way that I do it, kind of. I 
I say, uh, help them. I care for their needs. And then I say, uh, like after dark, come back. Um, and then, of course, they always want to talk about their medical thing again at 8 o'clock at night. Okay, I do that. And then, and then I say, <laughs> I used to have, try to think of these clever segue sentences and transitions. You don't need them. After you've helped them, you can say, so, have you ever heard about Jesus? <laughs> You're going through a translator anyway. They'll clean it up. <laughs> so, they're like, uh, so now, now I look at body language. And I'm really good with body language. And I can tell you guys are ready to go. And so, if they do like this, they go, no, I'm a, but you're not. But uh, you're not going. If they do like this, they go, no, I'm a Muslim. Well, then I know the Lord's not moving in their life. He's not drawing them. You know, and, and it, I have tried so many times to force the gospel on them. It just doesn't go well for them or for me. So I go to the next house. I try to get out of there that day and go to the, another one the next night. Have you ever heard about Christ? And they'll go, oh, I've always been interested in that. Well, that's a good sign. When they lean forward and they kind of do the open thing like that, you know, it's like they're interested in Christ. And so I talk a little bit and I say, have you ever had a dream about Jesus? Oh, God, it's almost every time. And frequently it's like, yes, just one week ago. <laughs> and you're there. God knew you were going to be there. So he gave him a dream a month ago, two weeks ago, a week ago. Happens all the time. Share the gospel with them. And then I say, do you hear a voice telling you that this information is true? They always say yes. Because, see, when I came to faith, there was this voice saying, your dad was wrong. These are not charlatans that are preaching the gospel to you. These are men of God, and this is, a tr- this is true. My dad was sitting right there. I looked at my dad and went, I love my dad, but golly, this is the voice of God telling me this is true. So now when I witness, I tell people, do you hear a voice telling you that this information is true? They always go, yeah. I say, that's the voice of God. He wants you in his family. He wants to write your name in a book. Come on. And you know what? They never come to Christ the first night. They are like, their emotions are moving. Sometimes they're crying, and they go, no, I'm not ready. That, I like that. That's smart. They want to go home and think about it. And they come back like days later frequently. go, I can't sleep from thinking about what you said. I can't eat. I can't function. What, what you said was like a knife through my heart. I've heard that before. Uh, and I'm not a great evangelist. And it's not just me. It's me and these other guys. I'll say, how did you come to Christ? And they tell me the most amazing stories. I, I guess I've interviewed about 300 Muslims that have come to Christ in, in 10 different, 15 different countries. And the stories are, every one of them is cool like that. Because God's doing it. You know, uh, uh, God's drawing people into himself from every tribe, tongue, language, people, and nation. And uh, we can either be a part of it and be relative, relevant to his agenda or not. I don't want to be or not. All right, everybody can go. And uh, I'm, I'm here. <laughs>